while. Majima-san. I hear you're trying to start your own family. What do you want me to do with this brick? I didn't know he was Kazuma-san. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah? I didn't know. Forget it. You're too kind. Kazuma-chan, too kind. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Yakuza Like a Dragon. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. Hosted by Arnie, Justin, and Stuart. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Today, we're discussing Like a Dragon, starring Kazuki Kitamura, Goro Kishitani, Sho Aikawa, directed by Takashi Miike. This is Arnie, now playing co-host, who is ready to talk about the boy with the dragon tattoo. And Stuart. And this is Justin. So welcome back to the arcade again. We are doing a review of a movie I've never heard of based on a game I'd never heard of. Okay, it wasn't just me. Yeah, I you, this one came to us actually by special request. Normally, games that don't get huge distribution in America, we're like, well, we're not probably going to cover, you know, there's a few that we've skipped uh, that, that fall in that category. But two things. One, Like a Dragon, this game from Japan did make it to America and I guess has been quite successful. They've had several sequels since then. So here it's known as Yakuza. Over there, it's like a dragon. And two, it was someone that was a fan of Takashi Miike who really wanted us to find a way to work him in there. And since I'm kind of a fan as well, I was partial to slip it in here when we had a free week. Hey, a video game movie by a known quantity director. I was excited about the property no matter. As compared to Uva Bowl, I figured Takashi Miike had to be bringing the heat. He's done a lot of movies. Over a hundred. The man is super prolific, and he makes all style of movies. I mean, he it's, he's a natural for Yakuza movies, because half of them have Yakuza in the title. But he is probably in America best known as a horror quantity. When they had Masters of Horror, the TV series... He was the one foreign director they brought in to make an episode because he's just known for splatter. He's known for good gore. And he had a real breakout with a movie about 20 years ago called Audition, which I won't spoil too much. But when I went to the theater to see it, they did hand out barf bags with the, the name staffed on it. It's, it was an extreme violence right when torture porn was starting to find its legs. And he's sort of the, the founding godfather. If you just want to see viscera <laughs> if you just want to see <laughs> gross things here's the thing about Miike. i would say most of the movies i've seen probably about a dozen i haven't really liked the whole thing but there's always a stretch it might only be two minutes but there's going to be something amazing in there that you just kind of have to check out so i'm always up for watching his stuff even though maybe the whole thing is a little bit tedious or incomprehensible there's going to be a scene that you're just gonna wag your tongue it's interesting you say that because i i'm not familiar with any of his work and watching this movie i 
the one thing that really stood out to me was the style of it. So I thought maybe that's why he was brought in to direct a movie like this, because they were looking for a certain style. But I guess it's interesting to find out that he's just kind of all over the place when it comes to looks and feels to his movies. I would say he does have a consistent style, and this movie represents it, but he can do all kinds of genres. Maybe another thing that people know was they Americanized One Missed Call, and that was in the J-horror craze, like something about your phone calling you and killing you. I don't. It wasn't Ring. It was the Ring ripoff. But again, he makes about five movies a year. Highly prolific. And I heard he turned Sega down. This is Sega was really interested in getting their movies out there, their video game a- adaptations. Someone told me this is the first one ever. I mean, I know it's before Sonic, but that's crazy. Hmm. But I read that somewhere, and he was like, eh, I don't know if I want to be a corporate shill. And I think that ended up being kind of a joke in this movie. There's a lot of product placement and a lot of... There's a product placement that even turns the character into a superhero. So I think he went into this with some reluctance. But hey, he probably had a free week and said, why don't I crank this out? Well, I think it turned around for him. You know, I didn't know about this movie. I didn't know about this game. I did a deep dive. I've been playing the game for over a month. I did stay to the first one. I know there's so many. I watched some videos of the others, but this is a really interesting game, how it even came about, is after the Dreamcast, remember the Sega Dreamcast? Briefly. Oh, yeah. It came out in 98, and by 2001, it had lost badly to Xbox and to PlayStation and GameCube. So Sega was like, okay, we're getting out of the hardware market. We had our heyday with Genesis. We're now just going to make software and sell it to other systems. But while they had, you know, some successes, they were really struggling. And so they decided to just make very small teams and be like, Go off and develop a game, and let's see what you come back with. And the creator of Like a Dragon, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce because I will not do it justice, came back with an idea of making a game for adults. At that point, the Japanese gaming market was primarily thought of as adolescence, and the adults had grown out of video gaming. But now that game players had grown up, he thought, let's try to tackle the adult market in Japan. We'd done this in America. We had the Grand Theft Auto games and all the Mm -hmm. MA-rated games. And he came up with this idea for, yeah, doing a game based on Yakuza. And he got nothing but resistance the entire way. They're like, you're not going to make a game about Yakuza because it's not going to sell internationally. And he's like, well, let's not worry about international. Let's focus on the Japanese markets. Instead of trying to sell a little in a lot of places, let's try to sell a lot in one place and really focus on Japan and let's have adult content and let's bring in and hire a novelist. We have an idea for a story, but we're going to hire a popular crime novelist in Japan to come in and polish our story so we have a really solid story and put this game out. And they're like, well, we have a problem. This is going to cost over a billion yen. And to me, that sounds like, oh my God, how much is that? But it turned out that was only like 10 million at the time or something. It was, you know, game development can go into hundreds of millions. And the product placement you talked about became part of the budgeting for this. The locations in the game are real stores. They go to the store owners and are like, we want to put your store in this game and make it a central location where action happens. And then they'd go to like Coca-Cola and be like, we're going to want to put Coke in the store and got all of these product placements. And 
they have an internal challenge. Each Yakuza game needs to have like a third more paid placements than the one before it. <laughs> this is usually not something you brag about. But okay, I mean, I get it. Expensive game. And sometimes that can suck you into the realism. Like, wow, this is just, if you were in Japan, you might look at this and say, this is just like my corner store. Yeah, I mean, I understand this because I've played a lot of the PlayStation Spider-Man game, which is set in Manhattan. And I love how they got Manhattan right. But I'm annoyed how they got Manhattan wrong. Like, none of the stores in Times Square are actually the stores in Times Square because trademarks, copyrights, what have you. So you have all these faux stores, faux logos and things, and it pisses me off. If I could go to New York and actually see the Disney store and actually see the Starbucks, I'd like that a lot better. So for this neighborhood of Tokyo that they did, it has all of that. But... The game almost didn't get released. I mean, you're going to bathhouses in the game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they made the whole game. And then they had to go to Sony and like, will you put this out on the PlayStation 2? And it almost didn't happen. And there had to be some cuts made. But it was a lot of, tell me why you need this for the story. Do you really need to show the bathhouse girl's panties for your story? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, usually that's not the part they have to justify. But I guess they're worried about impressionable young children getting their hands on this. That that even though this was an adult game, that kids were going to find it and be harmed in some way. Not just kids, but that... PlayStation would harm their own reputation by having smut. I mean, you have to get their approval to put software out for it. But if they hadn't put it out for PlayStation, it just, it would have tanked. Or maybe we open up the door for Sonic After Dark. I mean, you know, you could you could find out there's a whole thing about like, ooh, we didn't know people were into this. That's the crossover I want. <laughs> I guess I still don't have a grasp of what type of game this is. I mean, like... Coming into this, I would have just assumed that it would have been like a Street Fighter type of game, but it sounds like it's more of a story-driven mission type of affair. I can't believe how story-driven it is. Now, I've said on so many of these podcasts we've done for the arcade, I love cutscenes. Mm-hmm. I love a story for my game. I like to feel like I'm playing part of a movie, right? So give me cutscenes, make them a cinematic, bring in the good voice actors, you know, do all of this stuff. So I put in Yakuza, and I know nothing about this game. I don't know what kind of game I'm going to play or anything. It starts with a tutorial, and what it is, is it's a brawler. To go really old school, imagine Double Dragon. To go, you know, more recent, you could think of, like, God of War, one of those, where you're just, you know, you're fighting people, and it's also a role-playing game. So the more you go, the more stats you get, and you can power up in different ways. Hmm. Yeah, I did look at a walkthrough briefly on YouTube, and it it looked like eventually you get there, but yeah, it seemed like there was a lot of movie interlude. Oh, Lord. The prologue especially. It starts on October 1st, 1995, and then it goes to September 30th, 1995. (laughs) Then we get to 2005. And the cinematics were so long of our main character, Kazuma Kiru, Talking about buying a gift for a girl he's crushing on? (laughs) One of your missions is to go to a shop and get a ring she'll like. And at a certain point with these cutscenes, I'm like, do I get to play? (laughs) (laughs) When do I get to kill someone? (laughs) I thought that's what the life was. (laughs) I mean, it's starting to sound like a lot of the story that might be missing from the movie is in this game. 
That's exactly why I hunted it down the walkthrough was I felt like there were must be ties to storylines or, or just in jokes to the game. And I'm going to just without having watched play the whole game, I'm going to say yes, that there is definitely going to be filling out a backstory in the game. There's also a, a prologue. We'll talk about it in a minute, but they released a mini movie a year before they released this movie. Mm hmm. This movie is basically the same story as the first game. But not entirely. When we get into it, I'll go into all the details. But yeah, the first game was a huge success. And they're like, well, we need to strike while it's hot. The second game came out in 2006. And this movie came out in 2007. Right. So the games were still pretty new when this movie was hitting screens. Yeah, it was like, a you know, as the Japanese are wont to do, it was part of a flurry of marketing. There was manga, there were radio plays, there were probably candy, you know what I mean? Like, when you launch a franchise, it's it's a whole lifestyle. And so, yes, this movie came out at the height of the first two Yakuza Like a Dragon games coming out and being super popular. And they'd only just started getting to the States, and it would be pretty much the teens before they become really popular in the States. That's refreshing, though. I mean, so many movies that we've reviewed here in the arcade have been like 10, 15 years removed from the height of the popularity of the game. But no, I really got into this game. I really liked the series. And it is, you know, a fighting game. Sometimes the fights are one-on-one. Sometimes the fights are against groups. You learn the combos. But it is so character-driven and story-driven and immerses you into this world that I can strongly recommend getting these games. I played the remastered versions that came out for the PlayStation 4. The graphics were good. The American voice actors, if you play the English dub, you've got Mark Hamill in there, Michael Rosenbaum, Eliza Dushku. Hmm. I mean, names. Yeah, I don't know about I'm I'm totally starstruck, but yes... <laughs> I agree. What's surprising to me, and I happily so, is that I would have agreed with the executives. This thing probably won't play overseas. This will probably only be a phenomenon in Japan. But in fact, America caught on. And that's cool to know that something that's so culturally specific can have a wide reach. Well, I feel like Japanese culture more and more has infiltrated geek culture here in the States. If you go to Barnes & Noble, there's a huge manga section now. That Mm-hmm. All my nieces are super into, like, yeah, all this anime that I've never heard of. This is a couple years after the popularity of Kill Bill. Especially the first one was very much focused on Japanese culture. But if I've heard of the Yakuza games, I gotta be honest, the name sounds generic to me. I know what Yakuza is, and, you know, there's also a game called Mafia. It doesn't really draw my attention. That's a very generic name, you know? Grand Theft Auto is at least telling me, hey, I know what this game is. Yakuza, I'm like, okay, it's kind of, you know, Yakuza is considered so badass that they're almost like the John Wick of Japan, right? You don't fuck with Yakuza. They're going to cut your fingers off. I mean, what are the stereotypes? Back tattoo, we'll slice off our finger if we've done something wrong and give it to our boss. A lot of Centauri beer. I know it in cliches, but uh, there hasn't been a lot of American films to tackle it. I'm thinking of Rising Sun and a very unfortunate 70s movie by Sidney Pollack. I can't imagine it more being more unfortunate than Rising Sun. Yeah, it actually was. It was Robert Mitchum <laughs> trying to get his <laughs> Japanese gangster on. And woof, he's like way too old for it. And 
Yeah, Sidney Pollack is like the director of Tootsie and like nice romances and comedies. Like he was, they were going to give it to Scorsese, but like they felt he was too inexperienced. And let me just say, <laughs> it needed Scorsese. Well, you talk about the stereotypes of the tattoos and the finger cutting off. The people who made the first Yakuza game, they wrote it, you know, just as themselves and gave it to the novelist. And the novelist is like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know anything about this part of town, the red light district where the game takes place, let alone the Yakuza. And so the guys, these game developers went out and like spent 300,000 yen one night at one of the bathhouses and strip clubs so they could add realism. Well, <laughs> since you insist, <laughs> let's have a debaucherous lost weekend. <laughs> Strangely, Sega would not reimburse the game developer for those business expenses. Uh, yeah, there are some legal trouble in doing so. And they did learn about real Yakuza ways and fingers being cut off. That was in this game until PlayStation said that had to be cut back. And I never knew this. I find this fascinating. Tattoos are still taboo in Japan. Even, like, the silly Yoda tattoos Americans get and things, Japanese look at that, and tattoos are strictly for Yakuza, pretty much. And you get those giant tattoos, and if they see Japanese people with tattoos, they pretty much assume you are a gangster. Hmm. Ah, it's a way of denoting, yeah, who, who you're dealing with, because nobody would get one casually. That was interesting to me, the way tattoos have become so normalized in American life that... I found it interesting that in Japan, which is so fashion forward, that they do not embrace tattoos except on the other side of the law. So they really put a lot of thought and art into the tattoos here. And yeah, our main character, Kazuma Kiru, he has a giant dragon tattoo. He's the guy with the dragon tattoo. And so that's why it was called Like a Dragon. Uh -huh. I, was, I was wondering, you know, anytime you put dragon in, Americans might confuse it with Inner the Dragon, which remains one of the big cultural exports of Asia. But yeah, I was wondering if there was a story reason why they would prefer the title Like a Dragon. It's because this character, Kiru, is the star of the games. You're going to follow him. He's got the dragon tattoo on his back. And they viewed the character himself as very dragon-like. You know, every tattoo they gave the characters, they tried to mirror the personalities after. So he's supposed to be the metaphorical dragon of the game. Well, he's actually going to, like, breathe fire and stuff in this movie. I don't... Does that happen in the game? Can you, like, get blue flames coming out of your back? In the one I played and in the videos I've seen of the others, not that. I mean, you get some punching effects that go on, as video games have, but no, it's not ever like Mortal Kombat, where you suddenly start shooting fireballs and harukens and anything like that. The Mortal Kombat, it isn't. It's really trying to be more grounded. Okay, so that's the Miiki influence, is that they bring in this director that's known for outrageousness. I'll just put it this way. One of his most famous Yakuza movies, Dead or Alive, ends with, like, the guys, like, it's a face. I almost don't want to spoil it, but they end up pulling out nuclear missiles. I'll just put it that way. It's <laughs> it's way Bugs Bunny over the top, and uh, he just again, you'd be disappointed if he didn't do that. So I guess that's his flair that he's thrown in on the game. And you said he was reluctant, but when Yakuza Two was coming out in Japan, they wanted a prologue movie that would basically summarize things up to that point and 
let you know where it was going. It was basically the first part of the first game done live action. And maybe they were trying to woo him, but Takashi Miike was the producer of that. He didn't direct it, but he produced that in 2006. Have you guys seen it? I can tell you he didn't direct that because when I found it on YouTube, I was like, these are the same characters, but suddenly it's very melodramatic and it's all about like young love and all these orphans and there's there's very little Yakuza in that prologue at all. But it's very much like the game, you know, I told you the whole first mission of the game is find something for a girl you're crushing on. Here's the backstory of our hero and that girl growing up together at an orphanage and his best friend. That's very epic. That I mean, normally you just want to start with, like, the guy got out of jail and he wants revenge, but they're going to start with him as an orphan and work his way up <laughs> through teen years and all of that. Yeah, we could talk about the prologue, I guess, and the game after we get the plot, maybe. Arnie, do you got that one? It's a little hard to follow. I kind of just don't want to give it to you. <laughs> I, I okay so you'd be the second one not to i'm more curious what you guys got out of this because my plot summary i had to work really really hard to not be influenced by all the stuff i know from the games mm -hmm. because i got pretty deep into the world even if i didn't play a lot of the games that i wanted to and so i know who all these characters are i know what all of their beefs are but I don't think it's in the movie. Yeah, this could be fun. Let's let's see what we can make from this. Yeah, <laughs> Justin, you give it because I've at least seen the prologue. You came in this, I'm assuming, relatively cold. What did you see? <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> I saw a lot of characters and I wasn't sure which ones were going to come back, which ones we should hang on to, which ones we should pay attention to. It became pretty clear up front that they call him Ryu throughout this movie is going to be our main character. And I'm guessing, is that is that a nickname? That's a shorting of Kiryu? I thought they always said Kiryu. Maybe it's the translation you on your disc. I feel like there's a lot of different translations. And I saw where like some characters are named Noguchi. And in other versions, he's the same character is named Mr. Date. So maybe Ryu is just your special cut. Yeah, possibly. I never saw that. <laughs> and they also have different names at times. Like... There's a character in here that is Nishikiyama, but then they just start calling him Nishiki. Yeah. Hmm. And he's got a big part in the prologue that you would never guess watching this movie. The whole reason I watched the prologue is I didn't even know the prologue existed till I watched the movie. And then I saw that Mike had been involved with that. And I'm like, do I need to see the prologue? Do I need that? Does anyone need that? Does Justin need that in order to make sense of this movie? It's 40 minutes. I mean, lest you think this little promotional thing they did for the second game is like one of those 12-minute animes that is put out in America. No, this was a 40-minute live action, cheap as hell. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing of it is, is that you couldn't integrate it with this movie because it was done on, I mean, it looks like muddy VHS. I mean, the production values are so low. There's a whole market in, in Japan of straight to DVD. I mean, I guess it's not untrue here in America where they, they can just accept much lower technical standards and yeah believe them when they say that this was put out for that market it really doesn't look it doesn't have the same actors it doesn't have the same look or feel it's not directed by miki so it was hard to connect to the prologue if it weren't for the names of the characters i wouldn't have been able to do it that might have helped it might have caused more confusion because 
the first 15 minutes of this is just being introduced to a slew of characters that I just... I'm having a hard time keeping straight. Like, I believe we start off with a bank robbery in progress with a bunch of cops. Were they next door? Were they across the street? Yes. Okay. The way I would look at it is this. It feels like one of those movies about a place. You know, if you saw the movie Slacker, that's got like a hundred different characters coming in and out of it. It's all about Austin, Texas. That's the character you're going to find out. Robert Altman made a movie about Nashville called Nashville. 40 different characters coming in and out, and sometimes they bump into each other and their storylines intertwine. It feels very Pulp Fiction in that way. I mean, you mentioned Tarantino earlier, and I definitely feel like there's an influence of can you connect all these pieces? Do they connect? And what kinds of things do you imagine the meanings are when you do? That information would have been very helpful watching this movie because I, I think I was watching it more like a Guy Ritchie film where it's like we're being introduced to all these disparate characters that may or may not bump into each other at some point. And sometimes it's being played for laughs. Sometimes it's being played for dead serious drama. But now that you're saying it's more about a place and that's a character, that helps put this whole thing into perspective. It does, and yet it doesn't, you know? The games themselves aren't really... Yes, the place is very important, but the drama goes around with the people. Especially the first few games are very specifically about Kirio Kazama. And there get to be subplots and more characters as the games go on, because the game developers start feeling like Kirio's story was done, but that's many, many years after this movie came out. So this movie isn't trying to emulate the games where you have multiple people who you play at different times. And while being about a place, I mean, being about this neighborhood in Tokyo, the red light district, on the hottest night either of the year or ever, possibly, is interesting, but... Man, there's so many characters, and so many of them never interact. Many of them do not matter. I would say the theme that holds them together is Yakuza. They're, all their lives are impacted in some way by a criminal underworld element. They'll all either be criminals or be inspired by criminals or coming out of jail have, having served time for being a criminal. They, they, they all seem to be connected to these mafia families in one way or another. That's the theme I can tether everything to. But yeah, they don't all interact. And I think we should start then with Kiryu. He's the star of the game. He's the one in the prologue that gets all of the backstory. Just to set up what I saw, Arnie, you can fill this in if I'm missing details. They go all the way back to 1980. And he is an orphan. And I think he's an orphan because his parents were tied up in the mob. He was either the victim of a Yakuza crime and lost his parents and became an orphan, or they were criminals and they got killed. And because of that, Yakuza have this ethic, I would say, that we need to take care of the people that we've orphaned. And so they send them all to this nice sunflower farm. <laughs> and that's where he's going to meet this girl that he'll be obsessed with for the rest of the movie, Yumi. And he'll also make, this is the troubling choice, he has this best friend who we're not going to meet in this movie until the very end. And they don't look like friends. And I don't know that it's ever clear why they had a falling out. But what you learn is, as they grow up and become more involved in the criminal life, this best friend killed someone that tried to sexually assault Yumi, and our hero, Kiru took the blame for that. The reason why he went to jail was under false pretenses. He didn't do that murder. It was actually Nishiki 
that did it. And so there's tension between them. But I would think if I were Kiru, I'd be the one with the beef. But Nishiki is the one throughout this movie that is sending goons to kill his old friend. Yeah, if you're playing the game, you start on the night of that murder. It's Yumi's birthday, and yeah, you're trying to get her a gift as Kirio. And you and Nishiki are friends. You're both at this party. And then, yeah, later that night, Yumi gets kidnapped. Nishiki goes to save her. But Nishiki has a sister who's in the hospital needing surgeries to save their life. And so Kirio says, you need to be there for your family. I'm going to take the blame for this. He serves 10 years and then comes back out. And that seems to be where this movie starts. And when he comes back, Nishiki is still his friend. It's that Nishiki has things falling apart and becomes very jealous of Kirio and their father figure, the head who put them in that orphanage, very much favors Kirio over Nishiki. Kirio was about to start his own family when he went to jail. When he gets out, Nishiki has his own family, but he's not doing very well at it, and he starts to resent Kirio for his own failures. And this is the game. Just to be clear, you're illuminating a backstory that isn't quite this movie. It is not anywhere in this movie. And in this movie, you get introduced to Kiru on the streets and you find out later through dialogue he just got out of prison and yeah we don't see Nishiki until the very end and you're right to say who the fuck is that guy because he's not been in this movie and why is he mad at Kiru yeah we'll hold that until the end but we know that this has to be the star because man what a cool white suit and he's got the crocodile shoes and he's running around in all the neon and it just looks pretty cool i just think like for reasons he's running and then we're going to find out this is what i was able to piece together all at the very end having consumed the prologue and having just thought about it a while I think we're supposed to think that he might be responsible with the fact that there are 10 mil 10 billion yen missing we're going to have intercuts of these stock market figures and, and large numbers dwindling down to zero. And we'll have found out that there is 10 billion yen of the Toju family, Yakuza family, missing. And as it were, the person that got killed that he took the fall for 10 years ago was Toju. So it's almost like... Maybe he got out of prison and is pulling this heist. I kind of followed that much of it, but then I feel like that was resolved fairly quickly. I mean, like, the head detective catches up with him fairly early on and just kind of lets him go on his way. So, kind of felt like, even if there was suspicion that he was behind it, like, they're going to be keeping an eye on him, but they didn't really think it was him. Right. At no point did I think it was him who took the money, admittedly. When I heard that there was 10 billion yen missing, I'm like, oh, so they're just adapting the first game as the movie. And I have to think maybe they did. Maybe there's like an hour of extra exposition and character scenes on some cutting room floor somewhere that would make a lot of this make sense and just be a replay of the movie. I mean, I looked on YouTube and I found somebody who just put together the cutscenes from the game and that was well over four hours. So you add some fights in and you're looking at Kill Bill length here for the entire story. Maybe they filmed it all, but I never thought Kiru was going to be the robber. I'm just going to interject and say most of Miki's movies are 
hard to follow, almost by design, either because he's haphazard and he's shooting five movies at once or just because he, he likes to make us work for the answers. But I would actually argue, my guess is, even if you sat there, and we're going to try, sat down and, and looked at scene by scene and reassembled and relooked without referencing that video game, you would not be able to tell a comprehensible story. There are just too many things that are gone. That's why I didn't want to give a plot summary. Justin, <laughs> did you get a story out of this at all? Stuart did all this research, but I'm really interested in what you got out of this without any research. If somebody just rented this movie, what did you feel? Okay, I did have some anxiety because like, I was starting to feel like, okay, maybe there's some cultural stuff here I'm just not getting. But I did get the sense that this was meant to be somewhat confusing. It wasn't being spoon-fed to us. So even if I was somebody who could speak and read Japanese and understand it culturally, I could still be watching this movie and be confused to a certain degree. So I feel a little bit better knowing that it wasn't just a barrier there. What the fuck is part of the strategy, right? Like right. we're to be incredulous scene after scene. We're supposed to be going, what? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point, I think there are supposed to be little reveals that make us go, oh, but there's not too many of those. I feel like there's more what than <laughs> oh. But the whole thing, after sitting through the whole movie, it just, it ends up feeling like I do need to be familiar with the game lore to understand everything that happened. Because there's characters that are introduced that do big things that I feel like would have more weight if I knew who they were outside of what they showed us in this movie. Let me rephrase something. Did you feel like you needed to understand the movie to enjoy it? Is it important to follow a plot, or is it just fun enough to watch these crazy people do crazy things scene after incomprehensible scene? I mean, it was entertaining enough. You know, I was I was never bored. Right. I, I, would, I was enjoying the way it looked. You know, sometimes I felt like it was on sets. There was a few times where they were actually on location and it really kind of stuck out. But overall, I was I was never bored. I was having fun with this. Most of the actors are very good. I mean, our main character is just oozing with charisma. I mean, they did a good job casting him. Oh, God, I feel like he just jumped off the video game screen. I mean, he looks the part, the outfit, the white suit with the red shirt, the facial expression, you know, not being very emotional, not being a character who's going to give you a lot of reaction and things and just being a tough badass this guy owns it i can't believe how much he felt like the video game character to me and i saw enough of the walkthrough to know he does hook up with a small little girl I don't necessarily remember a dog, but there is this Haruka who is tagging along. At some point, one of the characters jokes that they're lone wolf and cub, which is sort of a reference, a Japanese reference to a long-running manga movie series about an old samurai and a young samurai going on a road trip. But it, it feels formulaic in that way. It, if there is a through line through all of this, the thing that I hang on to is that we have this ex-con out of prison who's teamed up for reasons that are obscure with a little girl who she's not an orphan he may be attracted to haruka because he was an orphan but she believes her mom is still alive and somewhere in this red light district they gotta find her and the more that they look the more they think maybe she's been killed i really needed to see these two meet up in this movie uh, i mean you see ryu come into town and get attacked for being Yakuza in a drugstore. But he was in the drugstore getting dog food to take to this girl. Why is this girl here? 
How did they meet up? Why is he interested in this girl? If they're teasing it to have it all be aha reveals later on, I don't think that worked. I think we are supposed to be straining on our tiptoes, leaning over the cliff going, why? And again, the connection I can make, and some of this is pulled from the prologue that really emphasized the fact he was an orphan, is he's, you know, he's a a softy for kids in trouble. Like, for his own background, he doesn't know yet that her mom knows his childhood sweetheart, that Yumi, the girl that he's probably trying to find himself, he hasn't seen since he went to prison, she is the aunt of this young little girl. That will come out in the middle of the movie. So even more reason for him to tag along with her. Well, and you guys have me a little bit concerned that the version that I watched is somewhat mistranslated. Was she calling him uncle throughout the movie that you guys watched? No. 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 See, in my translation, <laughs> she called him uncle every time they had a conversation. So I was very confused. I did wonder about that because, yeah, she talks about, like, her mom's sister and people say brother and all of that. I'm like, some of these characters are orphans. I don't know if we're talking about a literal familial tree lineage here. That may just be a term of affection for someone that is avuncular, but not actually my uncle. And that's the way I begin to take it. In the game, I know Ryu will call him the Shiki brother because they were raised in the orphanage together. But then he'll be like, so how's your brother doing? So... It's obvious, like, this is uh, the orphan brotherhood versus the actual bloodline. And yeah, I wonder in Yakuza if those those terms are, are you, you suddenly get brothers when you sign up. even And maybe that's even a reason to do it. You feel like you're connected to a family. If you never had one, that could be quite appealing. Hard to, again, cultural ignorance. I'm just going to raise my hand and say, I, as a Westerner, don't know these things. But it didn't confuse me too much. I understand what it is for a gangster to team up with a little girl seeking a woman who may or may not be the answer to both of their lives. And it's also just shorthand in film like this to just make our main character a little more heroic. You know, it softens him. You know, he can be a big badass who's going to kick the crap out of bad guys. But he also has a soft side that he can take care of a young girl. Right. In the meantime, like we've already mentioned, Inspector Date is... I think there's six storylines. That's really the first and primary one in my mind. The second one is this Inspector Date. I think he's the guy that put... Kiruyo away? Am I wrong? I get the sense that when when they do meet up, they talk about how they've spent the last 10 years. And I don't think this inspector is, by being outside of prison, had any happier time than Kiruyo did inside. No, he talks about how his wife left him. And he, he has a pretty miserable life. He's the one character in this whole movie that seems to have an emotional beat. I'm not going to say an arc because it never gets resolved, but a beat. <laughs> Now, we'll see. I mean, he does have a, a final note. Where most of his drama is spent is he's called in on a bank robbery. Specifically in this red district, there are two guys in ski masks that have busted in, taken hostages out of the employees. And there's an argument as to whether Date, who is Section 4, is in command of this over Section 1 cops. And again, this is cultural ignorance. My sense is that, you know, this is FBI versus street cop. I don't know. But there's an argument about rank. And they're all piled into a barber shop with the Korean owner always trying to, the humor is he's always trying to present them with, you know, beer and just make them play nice, even though there's all this tension. Yeah, I mean, this this is playing pretty well for comedy, even though, you know, there's some language barriers here. I mean, anybody can understand being 
cramped into this tiny little space in the hottest day of the year, trying to be quiet because they're on a stakeout. It's working, you know, as as somewhat a tongue-in-cheek type of comedy for me here. I'm getting a few chuckles out of it. Yeah. I'm getting some chuckles, but the bank robbers, I mean, it's funny because at times I'll find them rather amusing, but there's like a huge thing about they want to shoot a hostage and they're just going to shout each other's name at each other. And, like, push each other on the shoulder like kids in a beginning of a playground fight. (laughs) Neither one of them wants to be the one to shoot the hostage. Yeah, the cops themselves referred to them as a stand-up comedic act, and we're never to see them as anything different. They're bumbling crooks. But it's worth pointing out, in Japan, guns are very rare. Unlike America, where you feel like anybody could get a gun and, and go in someplace and try to rob it, it's a mystery as to how they even got these weapons. And it will take a while before we meet the arms dealer. It creates this mystery if you need another one, because there's a lot of confusion about where are the guns coming from. That will be a later character we'll meet. So with this bank robbery, though, is this connected to the 10 billion yen missing? Because I feel like they went in and there was no money in the vault for them to steal. Correct. Because that money was supposed to be in there? Yes. Okay. Somebody withdrew money, 10 billion, from a bank, and the police... Talk about this. I mean, it's easy to miss with subtitles and so much going on, but apparently to withdraw 10 billion yen to have that cash on hand, the central bank had to pull all the cash out of the regional banks, and so they chose to rob a bank on the day that the bank had no money. Ah, okay. Right. It's all slapstick, but there is, it does build into that mystery of who took the money, because then we'll find out that when the truck left with all of the yen in it, it disappeared as well. And the boss that owns all of this money, he's gone as well. Kazama is nowhere to be found. So, again, was this an inside job? There's a lot of different angles here. And one of the characters that we cut away to, I think one of the most mysterious, takes the longest to figure out, is Park. We have this Korean who's hanging out at a nightclub bleeding, like just sitting there with his hand like dripping blood. He's being watched, observed. I almost felt like he was a hostage for a while, but it just turns out that these men work for the Tojo boss. They know that this Korean wants to meet with the Tojo boss, but they don't know where he is. And eventually he just starts making delicious cocktails. Yeah, as a way of saying thank you for bandaging my hand. I do think... Park may be my favorite character in this movie. He doesn't say a whole lot. He doesn't accomplish a whole lot, as far as I can tell. But he also has the same cool as our main character. But he has a lot less going on, so I'm less confused about him. When he pulls out a knife, I'm thinking, oh, this is where we get the finger stuff. But no, he just slices lemons. And again, for several scenes, he'll just be presenting people with drinks. And I'm very confused I was like, I thought that this character was in distress, but maybe he was just their bartender. (laughs) We'll eventually find out he is an assassin sent by South Korea to handle somebody, but... But let's just table it. We also have probably the flashiest character, maybe the most fun character, certainly the one that I'll always be thinking about when I think of this movie, Goro Majima, the eye-patched baseball fan who was introduced (laughs) bashing the heads of his underlings as he's at the batting cage. Can I just say, maybe Goro is the gem of Japan, but the fact that Goro is played by an actor named Goro just tickles me to no end. <laughs> yeah. I, I Is he from the game? I feel like he would be. Yes, absolutely. He was. He was, he was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> a mistake? 
the game developer was out sick one day when they were doing voice casting, and everybody was coming in and being, oh, very serious and very realistic, and we're going to do everything really down to earth. And then the day he's gone, they hire this guy who's all over the place. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and the guy's like oh my god i was gone one day and you've ruined the game and it turned out to be a fan favorite this flamboyant guy with the eye patch and the baseball bat who's you know you mentioned the tojo i mean just to kind of spell it out for people not at all familiar with yakuza it's like the mafia you got mafia yakuza but then you know, you have Tony Soprano's gang, that could be the Tojo, right? And you have the New York people he dealt with, and that could be a different clan. Like the five families of New York. Yeah, so this guy Goro is a boss of a different family. Yeah, I get that. And he doesn't even care about, we, we don't suspect him for the money because he doesn't want to hear that story. He almost beats an underling to death for telling him that boring story. He's much more excited by the fact that Kiru is out of jail. And so it becomes his mission for the movie just to find him so he can bash his head in. They had unfinished business. Like, like I'm guessing Kiru kicked his ass at some point in the past and he's just looking for revenge. That's pretty much it in the games is... They're, you know, friendly rivals. They're from different families. But much like the Nishiki thing, we get that Goro is a little bit jealous. And it becomes this thing where they're going to end up teaming up in future games. Mm. But also, they're still going to fight. And Goro's still going to be like, "You, I will be the one who kills you. Nobody's allowed to kill you but me. But yet, they're going to work together in various games. And you get to play Goro in some of the later installments. Okay, well, I, I can imagine wanting to do that. He is a whole lot of fun. He, again, he almost feels like a Miki original. If you want to know what Miki's other Yakuza movies might be like, it's just movies populated by these kinds of characters that are really just outlandish, flamboyant, and in love with creating violence. There's nothing more that they enjoy. Their entertainment is the fact that they can draw blood. For reasons, it doesn't even have to matter. I don't know how you would make this movie, like do a remake of this for America, but if you did, Goro with his gold baseball bat would be played by Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Al Pacino in Scarface days. But yeah, <laughs> I, I get it. I appreciate the cartoon style violence that we get here, though. You know, I mean, he's he's bashing his underlings with a bat as he's taking batting practice and, you know, fun different ways. There's there's one shot where he gets his guy down and waits for the ball to hit the guy's forehead. Then he hits his back of his head and the ball goes flying. Yeah, he gets a home run out of it. <laughs> At least <laughs> that guy's dead. But hey, <laughs> but that's just it. He's not. He's not killing anybody. That's why it's cartoonish here, which is. Yeah, it's something hard to pull off. I mean, if you're going to get uber violent in a movie that is going to have fights eventually that have consequences it, it's it's a little tricky to pull that off but i think they do it well here yeah we'll talk about the the skirmishes as they come let's introduce the last storyline the sixth one probably the most removed i feel like from what seems important if anything does to you and the most removed from the game i can't find anything like this from the games yeah, Satoru is, uh, he works at a convenience store. He's introduced actually checking out. There's a Yakuza that's buying potato chips for 1,303 yen. I looked that up because I'm like, that sounds expensive. It's $11 for potato chips. <laughs> and, uh, we will find out, like, this Yakuza guy works for Nishiki. Like, that won't come out until almost the end here. 
But it's already setting up the idea that the old orphan friends, he's sending people to get this guy that just got out of jail. It's hard to imagine that. I I wish I had that detail. Or maybe it's there and I just haven't dug it up yet. But there's nothing that I found in the prologue or in this movie that explains to me why from the word jump, Kiru is such a wanted man by his old best friend. And it's not like that in the game. It takes quite a while after his release in the game for that to happen. So here, if it's a who done it and you want to know who took the money, you can never guess who done it because he's going to show up at the end and it's like, imagine if you're watching a Scooby-Doo episode and they rip off the ghost mask and you've never seen that guy before. It's not old man Wilson. They rip off the mask and like, who are you? That's this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Miki can be a little bit like Lynch. I remember he had a Lost Highway kind of movie called Gozu, where you're watching it, and about half of it, you're like, oh, this is just a Yakuza movie. And then, like, a cow demon shows up, and, like, by the end of it, you're like, people's skin are being removed and put on other people, and you're like, oh, I don't know anything that's going on. I do want to just stress, if you're freaking out by the fact that you can't follow this stuff, don't worry about that so much. I do think a large amount of this is just a humorous lark. I don't think it's meant to be completely decoded, or at least I'm not going to obsess over that. Where it connects, well, that's what we can talk about next, are the moments where we see these characters come together and whether anything profound happens by their commingling. But first, all these characters end up at a discount store. This teenage Satori and his girlfriend are just there. I think he wants a watch battery. And he watches the main character attack the guy that he sold potato chips. Or vice versa, actually. I thought for sure that Saturo was taking Yuri out to surprise her. Like he was going to propose or something because he's like, let's go to this place. Why do you want to go there? I need a watch battery. This place sells watch batteries. Ah, this place sells shitty watch batteries. I'm like, that's a horrible excuse to go to a... No, apparently that's the real reason they're going is to get watch batteries. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're an up-and-coming. I mean, the kid looks like he didn't have that much to offer her at this point. But she is already thinking criminally. They're cowering watching this amazing fight, and the cash register is open. We're going to find out that she walks out with all the cash. Yeah, are we to be led to believe that, like, this is the incident that, like, started her life of crime? Or is she just unhinged this whole time, and we're just learning about it as the movie goes on? The way I took it is... I mean, it's no surprise she took the money because you get a close up of her staring at the open cash register and seeing the money in it during the fight. So it's like, of course, she took the money. I'm thinking she had, you know, a lot of pressure going on that we'll find out about at the end. And this was her moment of inspiration, a big aha. I know how I'll get the money. I'll steal it. Okay. And I was thinking a lot about Pulp Fiction and Honey Bunny and just the spontaneous let's rob a diner kind of crime. It felt to me, I mean, we'll find out. Yeah, she is actually in debt to loan sharks and has a reason for needing all of this money. But it felt to me like, yes, she saw somebody kick a, a whole bunch of Yakuza's ass and thought, oh, let's, this looks like fun. I want to live the criminal life because it's more fun than buying watch batteries and, and dating convenience store clerks. In a traditional movie, we'd see these two kids in trouble. We'd follow their story and see them get in worse and worse trouble. And somehow, the 10 billion yen would come to them at the end by accident. She'd get out of trouble, and they're happily ever after. Yes. Yes. Not this movie. (laughs) Nope, that's where I thought we were going. 
Yeah, I did think she would wind up with some of that $10 billion, if not all of it, that she would be, yes, as fortune would have it. You're right. If this were even an, an indie movie, an American Western movie would tie all of these characters much more closely. Robert Altman, Tarantino, they would see the need to make sure that something had transacted between these characters, even if they never met, that there was meaning in bringing them in here. And here, I guess the only point is, She's a victim of Yakuza. Because she owes them money, she is now in a desperate strait. But she's trying to convince her boyfriend that crime sprees are fun and they're running around robbing, you know, restaurants and pawn shops where she can get perfume. She's using those short shorts and those long legs to convince him. Every time she's like, let's go rob someplace, the camera just focuses right on her upper thighs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Arnie, your guess makes sense, because every time we meet these characters, the situation escalates. I mean, it starts off with crime of circumstance, and then next thing you know, they're getting a gun, and they're willing to go further and further. I thought that's maybe how it would wrap up, but no, that story has quite a different twist to its end. It's all Yui, though. It's We do notice that it seems to be all driven by her. The boyfriend looks kind of just perplexed and would be happy to... He keeps asking her, why do you need this money? Why isn't this enough? And she'll sock him in the face or spritz him with <laughs> perfume and away they go. Again, we won't get that answer until the climax of the film. Next place to hang out, apparently, is the DVD store. Like, we'll find out that this is a nexus for a lot of characters. An adult DVD store, right? I mean, this was a porn shop. Well, it has a back room, but then it also has a back elevator that you can really go deep. I mean, wow. <laughs> I just thought, based on all the flesh I saw on the movies, that they were in a porn shop. And this is the red light district, after all. You said that the way that this has been shot, I would say, honestly, it feels very commercial. But I wouldn't say that it felt like hookers were in every corner or that it was particularly sexualized. It felt like an up-all-night place, but it didn't necessarily feel like an underworld place. Maybe a little, but maybe they could have gone further with it. I don't know. I didn't think porn shop. Let me just put it that way. Half of Japanese entertainment has those kinds of short shorts and, and boobies. <laughs> sometimes these locations and sets, sometimes they're small and colorful and they feel like we're on the set of... Lionel Richie's dancing on the ceiling type of thing or mm. but other times you know we're actually out in the real world and it's a little bit of a jarring switch when we go from set to outside yeah but the whole thing does have a seedy feeling to it I will say that like I don't feel like we're in the suburbs or in the business district of Tokyo or anything well, I mean, there is a bank robbery happening, but yes, when we get catch up with Goru again, he's going to be leading all of his baseball bat swinging gang members into this DVD store, and they just, for reasons, start a street fight. Yeah, it does feel like a set, but it does also feel like a party, too. Like, I'm like, I'd almost <laughs> want to be there. It looks kind of cool. And then Goro, because he's looking for Kiru, he goes to the man that has all the information. And you pay him by breaking his fingers and toes. Yeah, so is this a fetish? He wanted this? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it took me a second. It did me too. Yeah, I thought I caught pleasure on his face. Yeah, because he's asking for money for the information. And I think, you know, a good information broker would do that. But you also don't fuck around with Goro. I don't think he's the kind who's going to pay you. So when he smashes the guy's hand in the locker, it took me a moment. I'm like... So did he know he was just going to get beat up for asking this? By the time they're smashing his feet and I see the guy like smiling about it, I'm like, oh, okay, this is his kink. 
Yeah. And again, it's Miki's kink as well. There's always sadist and masochist in his work and maybe the audience as well. I mean, I feel like I am when I watch his stuff. So yeah, it's kind of fun to see that. This is also the guy that's going to sell you the guns. If you want to know where the guns are coming from, he's got a whole arsenal in the back. He's got a radio where he's listening to all the gossip. He can tell you the latest, but he's also can sell you the gun where you can create your own gossip. Yeah, worst kept secret in town because almost every character ends up in his back room in this movie at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the inspector will show up. You know, he's just followed the baseballs, right? If you see a bunch of people laying in the street with baseballs, <laughs> like, like in their heads, then you know that this was definitely Goro's gang uh, had something to do with it. And then, yeah, later characters, whenever they need a tip, we're going to see them coming back to this masochist. Another nexus point is the Tojo nightclub. This is apparently the place where the little girl's mom likes to party, although she hasn't been there a month. And so Kiru, Haruku, and her dog are going to stroll in there looking for answers and get a drink from Park. We're going to start seeing those characters meet each other. And it seems like insignificant ways, but I get a little excited when I see people that haven't been in scenes together suddenly hanging out. And then you get blue-balled because it goes nowhere. I mean, every scene in a movie should progress the movie in some ways. And I think there's a lot of scenes. This is a... Justin, you said you were never bored. I wish I wasn't. This is a almost two-hour-long movie. And you could easily cut 20 minutes out of this and really tighten it up. There's entire characters that could go. And even though they don't interact with anybody, I wouldn't think Satoru and Yui would be the ones to cut. But... Park, you could cut him out of this entire movie and nothing would change. I don't know that that's the outlook to take. Like, you're like, we got to get this to be about something. And I'm like, well, when you've designed something to be really loose, like if it's a long flowing gown, it's not going to look sexy. You know what I mean? You're not going to show off any of your proportions. The, The design is to be loose. I mean, I've seen this in a lot of Asian films, frankly. Like, they just want you to take in the mood, and they want you to make your own connections. And so I guess what I'm hearing is that you're not interested in playing that game and you're not seeing much about the interactions that is worth savoring. But I guess it's an interesting perspective because with scenes like this, I'm just sitting here assuming that this means something to a fan of the game. Mm, Okay. As far as the movie goes, I'm like, ah, okay, these guys are on screen together. I mean, there are relationships building. While they're in this nightclub, this is where we have another character that they introduce. The underling that has been watching Park suddenly gives our main character a cell phone. And because he's been in prison for 10 years, he's never operated the smartphone. He doesn't know how this works. And so he needs the little girl to teach him the technology. And they'll have a lot of back and forth where they wind up talking to the masochist as well. Yeah, that that was cute. He even needed her to hang up the phone for him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) This movie is heavy on humor. And maybe that's a problem if you're looking for substance. I know I, at times, were like, less jokey jokes, more blood. I was actually surprised that this thing wasn't more violent, frankly, given Miki's reputation. I was really expecting him to play off of the cutesy stuff with some really intense action. But I do feel like most of this is kind of a lark. The reason why you can't cut it down, Arnie, is it's because it all is kind of loose and there's no there there. I wish it was funnier. You know, I like the scene where Goro, you know, he hits the baseball and it hits somebody on the head and keeps spinning on the forehead, kind of like the phantasm ball or something. I like that kind of stuff. But, you know, some of it's dry humor. Some of it's 
goofy humor, like the bank robbers shouting each other's names, but some of it doesn't feel funny, and so the shifting tones also made it so that I wasn't able to just kick back and enjoy this as a comedy. Yeah, it's too much work, I think, to be... You say kick back, I'm like, no, I'm always leaning forward, rewinding, writing down the names, like, is that that person or is that that person? Like, there's too much of ciphering to appreciate this as farce. But I do feel like maybe the best scenes in this are farce. And after you've done all the ciphering, you realize it's, it is all kind of a joke. I probably didn't need to work that hard. I think that's why I was getting a lot of shades of like Guy Ritchie, I think I mentioned before. And, you know, with him, it's a lot of British humor. But to an, an English speaker, it's a little more accessible to get some of those eccentricities that, you know, you might not know culturally. Sure. And I feel like that's what was going on here. But I was just on the other side of the fence with the cultural references. Yeah. I keep waiting for the escalation. Like, all right, we've established Park and he was bleeding and that was weird. And then he became a funny character because he was the bartender. And then he becomes serious again because he meets up with the barbershop guy. Like where all the cops are hanging out at the barbershop. That barbershop guy has been serving them beer and all of this stuff. And he goes to throw some garbage out in the alley and there's Park. And suddenly you realize that they're korean contacts for one another and that this man is an assassin that has been sent here to kill somebody that i even now having seen the whole film i'm really not sure who jingu is but he's the beast of kamaruchu the neighborhood so if it wasn't for the game i would have no idea about this guy he's a corrupt politician politician yes oh wow i assumed he was just the big boss I mean, it is stated outright, and I, this was the biggest thing that was helpful. He is the one that stole the $10 billion. We've had a lot of suspects, but this guy that we, we've only seen maybe on a helicopter pad flying somewhere briefly, this is the man that's kind of behind the big heist. And he's a politician. Okay. And by having a nickname like the Beast of Kamaruchu, he is probably the thorn in everyone's side, from cops... Certainly the, the masochist informant wants him dead, offers that information to Park for free about where he's going to be. Ultimately, you would want to tie all the characters to him then. If he is the end boss or the big bad, you definitely wanted every single character to have some kind of even interstitial but, but meaningful relationship to him. In some way, their lives are touched by what he's doing. Yeah, he was working with the Tojo, using them to launder money and things. So that's why he was able to get at their money is because he was already funneling money through them. Okay. And you know what? I definitely feel like after watching Dragon Tattoo, like it is hard sometimes to talk about the finances. That's the least sexy part. When movies can gloss over that part about how things get laundered and all of that. It's probably helpful because it's just not very cinematic to see bank statements and ATM receipts. Yeah, I'm with you, Stuart. I would have preferred if somehow every character we're following has some direct dealing with our main big bad guy here. But the thing is, even though Jingu stole the money, he doesn't have the money. Kazama, Shintaro Kazama, stole the money from Jingo, who stole the money. Right. That's why Jingu is coming back in the helicopter, is to retrieve the $10 billion at the top of that tower. Okay, that is helpful. I never connected that, but the man that's the head of this clan that's been missing. You got a missing truck of $10 million and a missing clan leader whose money it is. He did that. He's disappeared so he can pop up later. Maybe that'll make sense when we meet him later. 
we're almost there. First, we got to have Karuyu and Goru go at it in <laughs> one of two amazing fight scenes. These are the best fights in the movie right here. You know, they really gave due to the rivalry from the video games. Does it play like this? Like, again, I know you said there's no special effects, flames and all of this, but does it feel Looney Tunes in this way? Like you can just keep beating on people and they keep coming back? With Goro, yes. Hmm. But this movie really made me wonder about Goro's motivation and everything. I mean, I don't feel this is made clear at all as to why they're fighting, but it's fun to watch them fight. No, I, I, again, I get the sense that this guy picks a fight with everyone. Everyone we've seen him on screen with, he beats on. And usually they let him. He, he should just hang out with that masochist all day long. That's like the perfect relationship. But yeah, for reasons, he's got it for Kiru because Kiru just got out of jail. And maybe he considers that a threat or maybe he thinks that makes it, oh, I haven't beat up on this in a while. This will be fun. In the video game, it said pretty much that he beats up on... Kiru after he gets out of prison because he wants to make sure he didn't get soft in prison. Gotta make sure you can still defend yourself. Gotta beat you up a little bit. I usually think of that the opposite. Like, usually you go to prison, you come out a little harder than you were on the outside, but... (laughs) Without knowing the relationship between these two and the movie not really spilling it out for me, I did get a sense of... There was a sense of respect there. Like, Goru wasn't just hating. I feel like he, he respected him and wanted to prove that he could take him out if need be, but... Yeah, Stuart, you said Looney Tunes, but I was getting a kind of a anime feel here. The way this was shot, you know, we got, like, different focal points and just, you know, close-ups on faces and stuff like that. So I, I kind of enjoyed the style of this fight. Yeah, the first stuff in the batting cages feels outrageous. And then I think Goru does something cool, like, they're hauling him away in the ambulance because he really got the shit beat out of him. He hijacks the paramedics and comes back, and then he must have given, it's not on screen, but he must have given that masochist informer the tip, you know, they think, when Kiru goes to that masochist, they think they're getting a tip about where the missing mother will be, but in fact, it's a spa where Goru is waiting behind a red curtain with a bunch of guns. And so he must have known what they were looking for, and he made sure that he was waiting at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, that place was confusing. So that was a bathhouse, a prostitution house? What was going on there? I think both in that case. Like, we will find out that the missing mother, or maybe her sister, works at this place... And, you know, maybe something bad happened to her. They went to one spa and the place was like covered in bloody glass. So like, again, the daughter is starting to have this feeling like maybe I'm not going to find mommy alive. But they come to this place. It looks nice. They got a nice bar. It seems really like pretty pink tint to all the walls. And then all of a sudden the curtain comes down and you're in a big gunfight. In a big room. I mean, just confusing geographically. I mean, you're in this small little holding room with a bar and a couch and then this curtain opens and there's grand stairs that have hallways on either side. It's like, what? what is this place? I th- honestly thought somebody was going to come down and sing Beauty School Dropout. <laughs> <laughs> and they could have. I mean, like, I feel like this movie would have allowed for that. There are these musical interludes. We do have some kind of lounge singer performing half the score here. So, yeah, I mean, why not do that? They'll do everything else. But Guru, it's worth pointing out, he does have a little morality. He doesn't want the little girl hurt, so he sends her upstairs. She goes looking in the various spa rooms for her mother. 
The fight continues until they're out of bullets. And then he turns to baseballs. That's the funniest moment for me. I love the choreography of when they're both out of bullets. They keep cocking the shotguns and shooting again and stepping closer again. It reminded me of something John Wick would do like that. Like you keep trying to shoot the other person. You're both out of bullets. And then in the end, they punch each other. It was very well choreographed, kind of like a dance of violence, and I liked that a lot. That's the Dead or Alive movie I mentioned earlier, how it ends up with nuclear weapons. Like, that is the showdown. It's like 10 minutes, and you like, by the end of it, yes, they literally pulled out a nuke. It is its own kind of entertainment, but now he turns, he doesn't go to nukes, he goes to baseballs. I guess that's his thing. We have our main character withstanding every baseball shot into his stomach as he basically takes this guy out. But he doesn't. He loses. He's stupid for taking all these baseballs because he loses this fight. He's about to be killed if it wasn't for this character we've never seen before coming in out of nowhere. Well, it's the inspector, but uh, yeah, is that the missing Toju clan leader? Yeah, it's the Toju clan leader who takes the shot and kills Goro. Ah, okay. Okay. Let me scratch off question number two on my list. 200, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I recognized him from the prologue. That was the only reason I was able to make that connection was, I think that's the guy that runs the orphanage. And if that were the case, this is the guy that's been missing this whole time. And now he's got a tip about where the money is and where they can, you know, the Millennium Tower. Because he put it there, as I understand it. <laughs> Okay, all right, you're helping me fill in a little bit more of the picture. Not a total picture, but at least why he's able to know this and get everyone headed towards Millennium Tower. But this is also where the violence gets kicked up a notch. Up to now, it's been somewhat cartoony, and you weren't sure if people were dying or just recovering or whatnot. But now people are actually getting shot, and they are dying. So the movie has kicked it up just a little bit. Yeah, certainly when we cut away back to those teenagers, you know, they've been popping in and out and Park had picked out a weapon for them when they were down there with the arms dealer and yeah you, you get the sense that like it's escalating to the point that something bad is going to happen it certainly does here their finale is basically Yui dead I think she takes a long time to die it's almost a joke she's gonna bleed a long time being carried around like a heavy backpack but yeah she has the guns the gun dealer sent out their photo. He took a photo of them. Like, you two are cute kids. Let me take your photo. Then he sent that out to the Yakuza. Like, these kids have a gun and are robbing. I don't know if they have anything to do with the 10 billion or not, but I just want to let you guys know. Mm. Well, they don't have anything to do with the 10 billion, but they do owe a lot of money to the Yakuza. And so they're coming now. And while she's admitting she owes this money, they show up and Park is going to try to give her a head start. Yeah, the assassin is already on the roof waiting for the big boss to fly in on the chopper. But while he's up there, he's been taking target practice on, you know, satellite dishes and signs and what have you. He sees this drama happening on the street. Why not help these kids out? You see that he has some compassion for them. And so he shoots one of them, but they end up running down an alley that he can't help them. And so the final fight is really for Yui to pull the gun. I think he made it worse because nobody knows he's the one who shot them. And at the same time, Yui fired wildly. She didn't hit jack or shit. But because she pulled the trigger and this other guy fell down dead, now the Yakuza aren't just about the money. They're about revenge. I think they were going to get her anyway. I mean, what do I know? Maybe not. Yes, it, it, he didn't help. I'll give you that. Park <laughs> did not help the situation. 
And now it's, yeah, it's come down to a showdown where Yui is, this is what I was talking about. Like, I expected more of this kind of darkness throughout, because usually in Miki movies, you get like a manically funny moment, and then you get a moment like this, where she's screaming something about, there's no way I'm going to have your kid. Was she pregnant? I don't understand this whole pregnancy thing. I thought maybe it was translation. No, no, I mean, infer what that means. If you don't have any money and you owe somebody something, i assuming that she prostituted herself and then wound up in a worse circumstance. Yeah, that's the way I took it too, is that the one guy that did find them in the alley that they're finally confronted with, I took as somebody who had impregnated her, whether by her own accord or because she felt obligated. Yeah. I couldn't tell who she was even talking to. Was she talking to the gunman when she said, I'm never going to have your baby? Was she talking to her boyfriend when she said, I'm never going to have your baby? I guess that could be a reading, but my sense is that she's ignored the boyfriend. She's mad at him. She called him a coward. She's taken the gun away from him. He is not even there in her mind. Okay, I thought she was talking to him. And I'm like, is she pregnant with his child? And this is supposed to be even more tragic. I just... It came out of nowhere, the I'm not going to have your baby bit, so... Yeah, it's a really dark turn. All of a sudden, these characters that were just... We thought were part of the comic ensemble have suddenly... We're talking about sexual violence, and people are dying, and he's walking around with her corpse on his back, and they pass the convenience store and see their lookalikes, like, smiling at the register. It's a weirdly dark turn that seems to have nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Also having very little to do with the rest of the movie is, for reasons, Kiru gets shot. Right. They take the little girl away. I think it's all the plan of Hiriki. He's been behind it all. I mean, keep in mind, he's the one that shot up that club and where the mother supposedly worked. He was the one that sent those Yakuza's into the thrift shop. He has been behind the scenes this whole time. Now he's pulled the little girl away and left Kiru for dead. But I guess in Japan, you get little doctor kiosks that you can just like pop in like a like a water closet. <laughs> you can just see the doctor for a second. They sew you up and give you an energy drink so that you can have the final fight. <laughs> and that is not a product placement. That was not a real drink. No? What? <laughs> oh, wow. I, I definitely thought that this was Miki making a joke on product placement. And, I mean, it's so over the top that he would suddenly be able to defeat all his enemies by drinking this brand of whatever it is. Yeah, in Yakuza 2, there is this mission where Kiru has an energy drink and gives it to a guy. And so the energy drink stuff is from the game. Okay. I definitely took it as this has to be part of the game. This has to be a trope from the game. The way they hung on the poster and showed us every word that wasn't translated on my copy. So I had no idea what they were showing me. (laughs) Stamina X Energy Drink is what it's called. So if that's not real... Maybe somebody should get in on that, because it really helps in this fight. He finally is facing off with Nariki. Like, we will finally see this guy. And he is, again, not explained why, but he, he's stealing the money? I'm trying to connect him to the $10 billion. There's a pile of money just sitting there at Millennium Tower. He's there shirtless, wanting a fight. And he's pretty good at this fight. But is he going to get in the chopper with the evil politician? Is he going to betray that politician? None of this is clear. I thought he was the guy in the chopper until later on we see what goes on. Yeah, I know. It's really confusing, this ending. Like, too confusing. Like, up to this point, I've been okay with this movie's games of conceal and reveal. But now is the time to really explain 
all the connections. There should not be much confusion, and confusion reigns. I mean, I'm just baffled by Nick Kiri coming in here at the end. Yeah. Yeah, this whole thing, I'm, I'm trying to take stuff from the game to explain what's going on, because so much of this is like the game. But at this point, I've stopped caring. I'm just kind of trying to enjoy the fight. I'm, you know, watching Nashki just repeatedly kick Kiru in that bullet wound. I'm like, ow, that has to hurt. I'm just trying to enjoy the fight for the fight because the plot's out the window. Yeah, I think that's, again, it's been signaled in other Mihiki movies. At some point, he just dispenses with the story and just goes for the crazy. He wants you to be baffled, I feel like. And he succeeded. It's really baffling. I don't know if this fight is good enough to sustain it, though. Like, I wanted it to be a little more epic. I feel like we've been building up to some kind of villain. We wanted to see some kind of fight. He's finally got his shirt off. He's showing that dragon on his back, but it's under a minute. It's not as good as any of the fights with Goro. No. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and if if everything in this last scene isn't directly tied to the game, then I am just super confused as to why it's in here. You know, I understand you need to end your movie on a big boss fight, but why the big boss fight isn't with the big boss who came in on the helicopter, I don't know. If this is his main henchman, then that should have been established, but I'm not sure if they're connected at all. I have trouble even understanding the cutscenes from the game at this point. Like, it's a big twist, supposed to be, that you've been looking for Mizuki, but Mizuki is Yumi, and I kind of just figured that out from the very beginning. I mean, and why doesn't the little girl know the aunt is the mother? In the prologue, Yumi, after her sexual assault, like, wandered away in almost like a dissociative fog. Like, she seemed to... In order to cope with the trauma she just went through, she became another person. So I think this is to say that she went so far as to get a plastic surgeon and literally become so that the Yakuza could never do that to her again. I don't know. In the game, she didn't actually get raped. She married Jingu. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and Haruka is Jingu's daughter. Oh, well, that explains why she's here, maybe, and why she seems to have the bomb specifically to kill Jingu, so he's a target. Yeah. Okay. Because Jingu left her to marry the prime minister's daughter to make more money. Mm. Okay. Yeah, but her appearance here and her actions are just like the culmination of a plot to a different movie at this point. Yeah. And poor Park actually shoots Jingu... But why? Yumi's bomb's gonna kill him in a second anyway. Park <laughs> shoots two people and accomplishes nothing. Yeah, but at least he got it done first. Dibs, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you don't, You really didn't end up needing Park. And by that I mean that it, he he didn't really accomplish the assassination. And so that's kind of disappointing for him. Maybe he doesn't experience it that way. But everything's blown up here. And all the money, that... 10 billion that was sitting there is now raining down on the streets. Ironically, this is when the robbers choose to give up and they all the money that they've been wanting to get out of the vault are, is now raining down upon them. Worth pointing out too, the inspector, Date, the one that had had such a hard case the last 10 years with his wife leaving him and all. Notice he picks up some money himself and walks away. He grabs it out of midair. He does quite the catch there. It's 
Yeah, I'm I'm thinking that maybe he's walking away from the force, or at the very least, he feels like he's owed. He's walking away from the straight and narrow law enforcement. And again, everyone here is kind of a criminal. One question I have about this ending before we wrap it all up is, is this helicopter at all part of the game? Like, the way this thing flies in and, like, is almost harassing people on the ground and banking into buildings and... Yeah. <laughs> is he drunk? Yeah. Maybe he had some of that energy drink. There's a bunch of helicopters in Yakuza 2. I don't recall any of them ever bouncing around like monkey ball. Yeah, it just, the way that it was done just felt, I mean, we've said it before, cartoony. It almost felt like it had to be referential to something other than just being thrown into this movie that it didn't feel like it needed to be in. But did this movie need to be at all? Justin, Stuart, do you recommend Like a Dragon? Justin. This is an odd duck, you know? I mean, I, I can't just straight up say I hated it, because it has style, and I enjoyed the performance of quite a few of the people here, and there's moments that I was literally enjoying the movie. But at the end of it, I walk away not knowing what happened, who half these people were, what any of their motivations were, and really, I just don't know what happened. I have just questions. And to be honest with you, they're questions that I don't even feel like I need to have answered. So it didn't grab me in a way that I feel like, oh, geez, I, I need to find this stuff out. There's got to be better movies in this genre for people to watch. I can't recommend any of them because this isn't this isn't my bag of tea. You know, I'm not a I'm not a big fight movie guy, you know. So if if you're looking for a recommendation there, I'm sure somebody else can help you out. So this movie had me having dreams about it. And I feel like I had anxiety <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like I wasn't following it. Was it cultural differences? I don't know. But at the same time, it's not terrible. It's not a piece of dog dung like some of these other movies we've seen. Yeah, and you were bull. Yeah, I'm not going to dog on it too hard. It might be somebody's cup of tea. So, I mean, I guess if you're a fan of this game and you want to check it out, it's worth checking out. But I wouldn't be chomping at the bit to find out what happens next or for part two or anything. It didn't make me want to play the game because I feel like I just have more questions. So I'm just I'm going to give it a mild not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, when I found out about this, again, I was really excited about like, cool, like here's a director that I've always wanted to cover that I don't know how we would ever cover. Maybe if we did one missed call, but it's not his best work. But yeah, Miki doing a video game movie had a real chance of being the best video game movie ever made. <laughs> like I actually thought, wow, this could be epic. And here's the thing. When you think about the fights... Goru in particularly, it is. He's the perfect director to translate that kind of carnival craziness. But the problem is, because this is an elliptical storyline in which we have to infer drama that's gone on amongst the characters from decades before, that ain't his bag. I mean, he really is clumsy when it comes to motivation. And I don't think any of his movies can I ever think about them being psychological character studies, which you kind of need here in order to really invest, in order... Justin, to do what I think you're, you're talking about, of like really wanting the answers. Like, I agree. Like, I left this saying, well, that was kind of interesting and puzzling over it. I didn't have any dreams or nightmares, but I definitely, I sat with this one for a little while trying to figure it out. And in the end, the mysteries aren't tantalizing enough to expend the brain power. I do feel like there's something a little bit underwhelming about all of this. And yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed, but... Thinking about all the shit we've had to watch in this, like, video game retrospective, I did enjoy enough here to just sort of casually recommend it for its carnage. Like, it's not a good movie. 
again, I was never bored. I, I would say that I was drawn into it, played around in it, and then disposed of it quite easily. It's a mild recommend if you want to have a little bit of chaotic Yakuza fun. But yeah, unfortunately, it's not the best video game movie ever made. It's certainly not the best Yakuza movie ever made. It's no classic. It, that almost sounds like a participation trophy. <laughs> well, maybe it is. <laughs> I mean, it helps to like and know the director, I think. If you if you know this director's work and you agree with the philosophy that like his good moments outweigh the doldrums of his bad parts of his movies, then yeah, I mean, I think this one is pretty entertaining. And I was really excited because I played the game before looking at this movie at all and really thought the game had a good story going. Maybe a little too much story for a game, and I never thought I'd say that. But I was really getting into the game. And then knowing of Takashi Mika's reputation and cult fandom, I was so excited to come into this. And almost instantly, it was like a bucket of cold water was doused on me. And I'm like, you are missing extreme connective tissue. It was about only about 15 minutes into this movie that I realized... They are not going to make sense of things, but I still thought they'd tie it all together. It wasn't until about the 90-minute mark that I'm like, oh, these stories aren't even going to intersect. They're just going to kind of wave at each other as they go by, and they're not going to have revelations in a way or even interactions in a way that's going to provide any kind of satisfaction. And yes, I agree with you. The fights in here are very good. I enjoyed these fights a lot, but I have to believe there's a lot of movies out there I don't watch, a lot of martial arts movies that have very good fights, possibly better than these. And this one is just, I watched it the whole time going, oh, this is a scene from the game, but they're missing so many other scenes of the game, I wonder if Stuart and Justin have any fucking clue what's going on here. (laughs) Occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) But the worst sin for me was when I realized everything was kind of futile and it was just going to replay kind of a greatest hits of the game. Dear God, was I bored. This is one of like seven movies in Now Playing History where I just had to turn on the countdown timer so I could like go, okay, there's only 20 more minutes of my life I have to spend with this movie. There's only 15 more minutes I have to spend of my life with this movie. And yeah, that, that makes this a really solid not recommend. I liked the fights, but I'm sure you can find better. And when people weren't kung fu fighting, I wasn't having any of it. A couple fun performances, but man, it just became a chore to watch. When everything is just zigzagging in and out, it became an exhausting experience. Well, I mean, you recognize that part of it was the active participation it was asking you to do. What I hear is that you were like, I don't want to play this. But like, that was, they wanted you to work for it. Part of the withholding... The problem is I knew the answers to most of the questions because of the game. Mm. Ah, yeah, I get it. Okay. So that kind of ruined that part. It's like, oh, you're trying to trick me with this? I know where this is going. Okay. If I knew the storyline before I saw this, yeah, it would be even less... It was only intermittently interesting, and it would be even less so if if I had the answers. I'd seen it done better in CG form, so... yes. (laughs) That's what it came down to. And then I had more fun with the fights because I was the one throwing punches. Well, it sounds like you like the game. Would you be up for a redo? Because it was already done as a spinoff TV series in Japan. They made a side game, Black Panther, Like a Dragon New Chapter. And no, it ain't Chadwick Boseman. 
I'd be up for it. I mean, they just finally not rebooted, but changed up the games. In 2020, they released a game called Yakuza Like a Dragon, which is the first Yakuza game where you're not following Kiru. Uh-huh. They finally moved on to new characters. Hmm. I told you these were role-playing games. With this one, they've abandoned the pretense of action. It is turn-based combat. Oh, boy. Mm. Okay. So, if you're looking for the visceral thrills of Spider-Man or Immortal Kombat, this isn't it. This is going to be far like the early Final Fantasy games, where it's like, okay, pick your fighting move. Okay, here's his. Apparently, it's still a hit, though, because they've optioned it for a new movie. Like, Sega is going forward. They've got the producer of the recent scary stories to tell in the dark. I don't know if you saw that horror anthology movie based on a childhood horror book I'd never heard of. It became a big hit a couple years ago. Yeah, no, that's not a bad movie. Yeah, he's got it, and he's working with some other foreign producers. It's not clear to me whether it's going to be in English or kind of a Hollywood version, or whether it will be foreign language and we'll see what it is. But they're definitely going to try and adapt this new game into a new movie. Hmm. I'd be up for it. I mean, again, I think Yakuza's are just cool. And I do feel like Nikki had his little games here, but it would be nice to see someone do it properly, do it cinematically, tell the story in a way that most people are going to understand, follow, and get excited about. Like... Less obscuring, more adrenaline. That's the approach I would hope they'd take. I agree completely. Again, I think that you could really do a great John Wick-like Yakuza movie. Yeah, it seems to me like you definitely want to feature more of the of the fighting. With more characters that you've established, why they're fighting. <laughs> but we may not be done with Miiki either. I mean, it was brought to my attention. I didn't know about this game. I didn't know about this movie. I feel like I'm done with Mika. Do we, do we have to do another? <laughs> well, uh, we don't have to. I think we can kind of put it up for a vote. If most people feel like Arnie, we can kind of skip this. It's another Japanese game that has made some inroads, apparently. To, uh, you guys tell me, have you ever heard of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney? It's a lawyer video game. <laughs> You're actually <laughs> defending people in court as a video game. Hey, it's just a crazy enough premise that it might be interesting. I've actually played video games of that, but I've never heard of this specific one. Yeah, Ace Attorney got turned into a movie in 2012 by Takashi Miki. Probably, again, it turned it out in a week. So, again, if you want more Like a Dragon, if folks were really into this, we could probably pop it into the schedule at the end of the year. Let us know. But this is not the next video game we're going to do. The next one is another video game from 2006. We'll cover it probably in a month. In between G.I. Joe and Suicide Squad, we're going to have a Company of Heroes. Another game I've not heard of and a movie I've not heard of, so... Well, it was really straight to tape, and it's got Tom Sizemore, <laughs> so get excited. <laughs> hey, I love Tom Sizemore in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, this is 2013. Yep, this is about a decade too late. In the meantime, if you want some real assassins, we got Black Widow next week, so that'll be on the main feed. <laughs> Why do I just have a feeling that'll be something that more people download the first week than Ace Attorney? <laughs> <laughs> and Marvel isn't the only series we're going back to. This Friday, 
The Forever Purge finally gets released. It was supposed to be out last year, I think, but we saw it this past weekend, this Friday. If you're one of our binge and purge level donors, you're going to get that review, or if you donated when we did the Purge series way back when with Assault on Precinct 13, we're going to add that review to the webpage at that time. So it might be a good time to become a patron because you'll be able to get the show that way and you'll get our next patron show, which is next Wednesday. We're having some weird Wednesday, July 14th release for Con Air, which kind of sounds like a Purge movie mixed with Black Widow and Yakuza. (laughs) So thank you for your support. We would love it if you became a patron at nowplayingpatron.com. And Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, game over. Yakuza! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks. Find the details on our website. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho, associate produced by Jason Latham. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Credits read by Brock. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. 
Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. is to retrieve the 10 billion at top of that tower okay i'm just gonna i understood what you were saying but just barely just i don't know what's going on but i assume justin is hearing the same thing i am yeah i was about to just say that you might need to start your internet or something yeah it's heading heading towards the maybe you restart okay let me all right um i'm gonna save and reboot you guys keep going all right okay i say keep going I mean, keep recording. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Conversation okay. I was just like, how strange. <laughs> okay. Well, let's just, just like this movie. Anything. You can pop in and pop out as you feel yeah, like it. Yeah. The, the guy that knows the video game is not available to us for the next five minutes. <laughs>